As we read through this story, a story I think probably most of us will have known, at least in some way, probably since childhood, we discover there's so much depth to it. So much that it has to teach us about who God is, about the holiness of God, and of who we are in him. I've just recently read this book. Uh, It's called The Pursuit of the Holy, A Divine Invitation uh, by Simon Ponsonby, who's one of the ministers in Oxford, where I trained at St. Aldert's Church. Uh, It's a great book, and I'm really just using this as a bit of a springboard for my talk. I'm not totally cribbing everything that's in it, but I'm using it as a springboard uh, for what uh, we're going to be thinking about here tonight. Moses, formerly adopted into Egyptian royalty, but fled after it was discovered he'd killed, maybe murdered an Egyptian who was beating up a Hebrew. He more or less flees into the family of the priest of Midian, Jethro. So he arrives, and as he arrives, he rescues Jethro's daughters from some rather aggressive shepherds. He doesn't just rescue them, he then cares for them and their flocks by drawing water for them from the well and marrying, and then he marries Zipporah, one of Jethro's children. So Moses goes from being Egyptian royalty to being a shepherd for someone else's flock, a shepherd for Jethro's flock. And despite marrying into the family and becoming part of the family, we see in the name of his son, who he has with Zipporah, which is Gershom, a little of how he was feeling. Now in the Bible, names, names are really important. And this name means I've become a foreigner in a foreign land. And I think this betrays a little bit of what Moses is feeling. Moses has gone from being in the royal court in Egypt to tending another person's flock of sheep in the middle of nowhere, feeling a bit like, well, feeling like he is an outsider. And this is where we meet Moses here in the passage today, tending to Jethro's flock of sheep. And he'd led the flock to the far side of the wilderness at a distance after leading this flock, this long journey through the desert. He catches sight of a fire, a bush on fire. But this bush, it wasn't burning up. It wasn't consumed. And so Moses, noticing this, decides he wants to get his head around what's going on. So he goes and takes a look. Now, you might be mistaken for thinking here then that it's Moses that's made the first move towards God. Moses is the one that sees something, wants to do something about it. He wasn't. Ponsonby in his book says, Moses, in this time, is not in prayer, in a temple, in an act of devotion or consecration, acting out his religion. He's not looking for the Holy One, nor expecting particularly the Holy One to come. The initiative is God's. God, in his perfect, majestic holiness, dared to come down and to approach a sinner. A sinner guilty of murder, even. To approach Moses. And he approached him in the form of fire. Now, fire is used throughout the Old Testament uh, to demonstrate God's presence. And I think fire can symbolize a refinement, cleansing, energy. 
And it's something that can be so necessary for life. It's really important that we're able to have fire. But also, it's something that's really not very safe. And yet this holy fire, this presence of God, doesn't burn up the bush. And it's why Moses goes over to it. He probably wouldn't have been too surprised, having journeyed through the wilderness, through the desert, to see a shrub or two on fire. We saw it well, around the time I was moving up in August or so, didn't we? There were little bush fires and things that were just taking up because of the heat. In the desert, there would have been bush fires there, and Moses would have seen them. But he noticed this one is different. He was paying attention. He sees a bush that is burning, but really isn't burning at all. And that's quite something. So he thinks, let's go and see this strange sight. I think that's a bit of an understatement, to be honest. But let's go and see this strange sight. So God calls to Moses then. So having seen Moses approach the bush, God calls out to him, Moses, Moses. And somewhat amazingly, I think, Moses doesn't panic. He doesn't flee, doesn't shelter, doesn't question his sanity even. He says, here I am. Here I am. I reckon this speaks a little into both what we know about Moses and what we know about God. Firstly, God's voice wasn't frightening. It wasn't abrupt, it wasn't scary, but it seems like it must have been communicative. It elicited a response. Secondly, as unfrightening as God's voice might have been, it's still known that bushes don't normally speak or burn but not burn. They just don't do it. So Moses must have had some openness about him as well. Some openness to hear, ready to hear. So how many of us would have responded uh, like Moses, I wonder. How many times in our lives might God have drawn close to us, maybe not in the form of a burning bush, but drawn close to us only for us not to take the time to notice, not to, not to notice that that bur- bush that isn't burning up as opposed to the bushes that we see that do burn up in our lives. How many times in our lives might God have drawn close only for us to not take the time to notice? To notice the fire isn't burning up that bush. To notice that call. Isaac, Isaac, aid, aid. Ruth, Ruth, Sarah, Sarah. To be so busy doing our own job that we miss out on a time that God draws close on his terms. As Ponsonby puts it, we crowd his voice out of our minds. We don't leave ourselves space to hear as we look to crowd our minds with controls and norms. We like to control our lives, don't we? So we can crowd him out and not allow to take the space for that. And that space for God to approach us. And like Moses, if we do keep our eyes open, our ears open, not just at church, but when we're out and about, doing our own form of shepherding. So Moses was shepherding, we might be doing accounts, we might be doing the bin run, we might be doing all sorts of different things. Whatever work we do. But if we are taking the time to notice, intentionally going out, ready to hear from God, I think we're going to find his holy presence is utterly irresistible. We've just got to go and find out what is happening. We'll just be drawn to it so long as we're ready to notice, wanting to see it, 
so God calls to Moses, and Moses responds, Here I am. And God responds then, do not come any closer. I wonder why this is. I mean, the bush was safe from burning up, wasn't it? The bush wasn't burning up at all. But it seems Moses might somehow be less safe. Now, this is one of the more complex bits of the book I was reading uh, from Ponsby. But he suggests it's because the bush is amoral. It isn't a moral being made in God's image. But Moses is. And Moses' sinful nature his falling short of God's moral standards, God's moral nature, puts him in danger from this burning fire of holy purity. It puts him in danger from a moral eruption from who God is, something which might consume him, but doesn't endanger the bush, which is just immoral, not immoral, amoral. But it's not just that he can't come closer. Moses must also take off his sandals. He must stoop down and take off his sandals. He is standing on holy ground in the presence of the holiness of God. A holiness which is so holy, it makes the ground around that bush holy too. Moses needed to humble himself. This is uh, and was uh, done in, in, um, in some cultures as a mark of humility, taking your sandals off, taking off sandals covered with the dirt of life. How do we holy, humble ourselves in the presence of a holy father, of a holy God. God is someone who walks alongside us, who fathers us, yes, but he's also so much more than that. He's the ultimate definition of morality. He burns with holy fire. He is holy in all things by very nature, and we, by very nature, are not so alongside our knowledge of God as lover of our souls, alongside our experiences of God tenderly fathering us, how do we respond to the holy majesty of God? Well, in Moses' case, he took off his sandals. And when he takes his sandals off, that is when God reveals more of who he is. So Moses humbles himself, and as he humbles himself, God reveals more of who he is. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is the God of Moses' people, of Moses' father, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses, at this point, I don't quite know how it didn't come earlier, but at this point, he is overcome. He's afraid to look at God. He covers his face, afraid to look at God. That's how awesome God is when we encounter him. He's to be feared. He's holy. He's transcendent. He's most high. He's not safe. And Moses was overcome, shielding himself upon looking at such perfect holiness. And maybe also hiding himself from such holiness, seeing him too. Maybe he felt some shame. I wonder if we might sometimes miss out on this. We yearn to encounter the holy uh, imminence of God, his presence with us and in us, which is so important. And we know we can have it. And we know we, as we dwell in God, he dwells in us and alongside us. He walks alongside us. The father-like, fatherly, the way he tends for us as a father. And that's really good. We should desire this. We should yearn for this. We are in God and he in us. It's who he is. 
But in doing this, I think sometimes we can miss out on understanding his transcendence, his awesomeness, his terrific holiness. And we don't always see the fear of God. Ponsonby comments that the presence of the Holy One has not intimidated Moses into a quivering mute. But once the Holy One behind the voice is named, shock and awe take over. Moses had been in the presence of Pharaoh before, but now he's in the presence of God. So maybe in the past you're one of the ones who, who met the Queen. I wonder how you felt when you met the Queen. Maybe you've met your sporting hero or someone you role modelled yourself on all your life. And then suddenly, unexpectedly, you meet them. You just come across them on the street. The veil is raised and you see them. I wonder how you felt. How would you feel? I think I'd be a quivering wreck. I wouldn't quite know what to say. I'd think I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'd be nervous, definitely. And my voice wouldn't be quite so kind of straight as it normally is. It would definitely be a bit quivery probably start sweating quite a lot and I'm pulling my shirt off me. Now imagine it's not the queen, not your sporting hero, but God in all his holiness, the one who created heaven and earth, the one who spoke light into being, the God who created the oceans and the skies, the God who created vegetation, stars, the fish in the sea, the animals on the land, the God who created male and female, the God who created you in his own image. The God who called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who turned Joseph's imprisonment into rulership. The God who delivered Moses from the Egyptians to become royalty. The God who redeemed Israel from Egypt. The God who redeems us. This is who we are encountering when we encounter God. We encounter Father God. The God who redeems us. Who wants to know you. Is that not slightly awesome or inspiring? Something that urges slight caution and definitely not nonchalance. Sidlow Baxter says, the revelation of the love of God must be safeguarded by due recognition of his awful power and holiness. God is love. Yeah, he's definitely love. But he's also holy and powerful. He's holy beyond our imagining. This is who we yearn to encounter and who yearns to encounter us. Who condescends to meet us. That's who humbles himself to meet us, just as he did in that burning bush to Moses. And just as he did in Christ for us. And who still yearns to meet with us more. Let's not forget just how awesome God is, how great he is. But whilst Moses covered his face at the holiness of God, God had not covered his to the sin and slavery of his people who were subject to Egypt. He saw, God says he'd seen their miseries and cries. I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, he says. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, Israelites, out of Egypt. Verse 
go. God has seen. God sees. He humbles himself to meet with Moses in order to redeem his people from the chains of slavery. God plans to use Moses as a part of this plan, this great rescue plan. But upon hearing God's plan, Moses exclaims, Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And that's something we've been thinking about for a little while now, isn't it? Who am I? What's my identity? Who am I? Moses is saying, who am I that you should choose me? We can sometimes say, who am I that you should choose me to God, I think. We say, who am I that you should call me righteous? That you'd adopt me as your child? That you'd choose to dwell within me? Who am I? And we can tell ourselves, you're so bad. You've done so much rubbish stuff. You're not lovable. Who am I that God would want to call me righteous? Would do that for me. So what does God say to Moses when Moses says, who am I? God says, I will be with you. And this is how you know it's me who is sending you. God doesn't say Moses has done anything in particular to warrant this. He doesn't say Moses is good enough to do it himself. He doesn't say, you're so fabulous. I just couldn't help but ask. He says, I will be with you. This is all Moses needs to know about who he is, what his identity is, that God is with him, that God has chosen him and is with him. This is Moses' one and only qualification he needs. This is all he needs to know. God is with him. This being the case, uh, Moses wants to know a bit more. So he says, who are you? Who should I tell the Israelites you are? What's your name? I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I will be what I was. God says his name is Eya Asha Eya. Uh, I am who I am, which can be translated in lots of different ways, as I've just, uh, I, I just said. Uh, and you might be thinking, that's not God's name though, is it? Eya? That doesn't sound right. His name is Yahweh. Or in your Bibles, Yahweh is where Lord is written all in capital letters. Normally, anyway, in most Bibles. But read on. In verse 15, God tells Moses, Say to the Israelites, the Lord, that's Lord in capital letters, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is what Moses is to tell the people. Now, Eya means something like I am or I will be. But it's difficult to translate into English, but that's a good stab at it. But it might be confusing for Moses to say to the Israelites saying, I am has sent me. I will be has sent me. So as we heard in verse 15, God tells Moses to say, Yahweh has sent me. And Yahweh probably means something like, he will be. So Moses is essentially saying, he will be, he is, has sent me. And this is a personal name God wants us to use for him. The Lord. Yahweh, he will be. And he says, this is my name forever. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this name displays a glimpse of this, I am who I am. This is intimate. This is a God who causes Moses to take off his sandals and cover his face, moving from being nameless, known as El Shaddai, God Almighty, to being known by his name, 
suddenly to us, the king becomes Charles. The first minister becomes Nicola. The prime minister becomes Rishi. The president of the United States of America becomes Joe. God Almighty, El Shaddai, becomes Yahweh. I am. He is. So God is one to be feared, but he's also intimate. He no longer wants to be known by title, but by who he is, by very nature. He wants to walk with Moses. And while there are hiccups along the way, as you'll see if you read through Exodus, God uses Moses as a part of his redemption plan. When Moses listens to God, things work out. This meeting in the burning bush is a transformational encounter, a transformational moment for Moses as God uses him to free his people. Moses is called from tending his father-in-law's flock to tending and rescuing his heavenly father's flock. God choosing him, being with him, is a moment that changes the rest of Moses' life. And that moment moved him from being a literal shepherd to being a foretaste of the good shepherd, pointing towards the good shepherd, Jesus, who came to rescue all people from slavery to sin. So when Moses asks, God, who am I? God responds firmly by saying, essentially, your identity is found in me. I will be with you, I, the holy God, the one who makes the very ground surrounding me holy, the one who's both awesome and loving, the one who you fear but comes down to meet you. That's all you need to know about why I chose you. And who am I to be with you? I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I am who I will be. I'm the same yesterday, today and forever. I love that verse in the New Testament where Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. So incredible was this claim that those were questioning him, picked up stones to stone him. They knew Jesus was saying, referring back to Exodus 3 and claiming to be God. To them, this was blasphemy. They wanted to stone him. Jesus slipped away, though, fortunately. Jesus is that I am. He is the timeless one, the one who was and is and is to come. He was in the beginning with God. He was God. And he came down. He humbled himself to call out to us as our burning bush, to die for us, to rise again for us, that in him we might find his resurrection life and life in all its fullness. In him, we might find our identity. In him, when we ask, who am I? We can know the answer when we say, who am I is Christ in me, the hope of glory. That is who I am, Christ in me, the hope of glory. So are you ready to encounter God? Are your eyes open to noticing God reaching out to you? Do the Holy Spirit prompt within you amidst the business of life? Are you ready to hear that still, small voice? To notice God in the ordinary, so you can approach and notice the extraordinary. Are you ready to open, ready and open to meeting with Yahweh as he approaches you, the one who was and is and is to come, the one who's the same yesterday, today and forever? Are you awestruck by God? Are you overcome by his love? 
amazed that God could possibly have chosen you. That when you ask, who am I? God responds, I am with you. That your very identity is wrapped up in him. I'm going to ask the band to come forward now. I just want to ask us all, are you awestruck by the fact we are chosen? Not only to be a foretaste of Christ, but to be clothed with him inside and out. That we can literally become the righteousness of God, a child of God, chosen, alive, without guilt, without shame, secure. We can relate to the creator of the universe intimately, Yahweh. Isn't that amazing? He abides with us and we abide in him. He wants to reach out to us to speak with us, not just here at church, but wherever we are.